Take your Bibles and now turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 2. We're going to read just two verses. Verses 11 and 12. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Peter writes, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This is the word of the Lord. How would you describe your lifestyle? Your lifestyle. Is it frantic? or laid back? Is it modest or is it extravagant? We could go on and on with adjectives like that to describe people's lifestyles, but think about it in this term. What would a Christian's lifestyle be like? What should it be like? There are people, for instance, that (laughs) I know Christians, and I'm sure you know some too, and you can tell the difference in how they handle uh, problems that come up. Some folks, uh, partly because of their own genetic makeup, I guess, and their life, and their uh, uh, spiritual condition, they are worrying all the time. And uh, they can't really even sleep good at night because there's always some, some issue going on maybe in the family, maybe at work, uh, maybe at church, and they're just uh, very upset and don't really know how to, to uh, deal with that very well. And then there's people on the other hand who are so calm that it makes you wonder, do you really even understand what's going on here? <laughs> Why aren't you more upset than you are? And it could be that they're not paying much attention But it also could be because they've grown in their faith. And their faith has enabled them to be at peace even when there's a lot of turbulence going on. Some people are better able to do that than others. And that's just the way that that, uh, things are and the differences that people have. But think about a Christian lifestyle. Based on the biblical teaching for being a Christian, a Christian lifestyle is more than just accepting a creed, more than adopting slogans, more than uh, attending worship services. We could all be doing that and not necessarily be living the way the Lord wants us to. Christianity is a way of living. It is not just a set of beliefs, though that, of course, is true. But that set of beliefs, rightly understood, should prompt us and move us to live out our faith in everyday situations. 
Peter has been impressing upon his readers who have been going through trials and sufferings for their faith, the fact that God calls all his people who, are, who know Christ, he calls them all to holy living. We've seen that in previous passages up to this point. And actually at this point, verse 11, we're going all the way through 1 Peter now, and, and at, from this point on, he's really going to be laying out ways that we can apply our faith and live it out, as the title of this sermon series says, living a life of holiness in a hostile world. Holiness in a hostile world. And so, Peter tells us in these two verses the general plan, the specifics come following this, but here's just the general basic plan of how to live a Christian lifestyle. The first thing to notice there is a Christian lifestyle is distinctive. Distinctive. The beginning of verse 11 says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. And there's the first part. I urge you. He says to them, whatever a Christian lifestyle is, it's going to stand out from the rest of the world. Distinctive. It's a life of love. That's one thing that he's saying here. Look at how he begins that. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't just jump in and say, okay, now here's how you need to live. He addresses them as people who are loved. Loved by who? Loved by Peter, of course. And, of course, loved by the Lord. We, as Christians, live in the context of love. And that is the primary, supreme motivation. And really, and really, it's the only real motivation for living your Christian life in a lifestyle of faithfulness to God. It's got to be done out of love. Knowing that God loves me prompts me, in turn, to love Him back. We, we don't, you can't just make yourself love, but here, it's a, it's a supernatural response. John said in, in 1 John, we love because He loved us first. God loved you. Do you understand if you're a believer in Jesus that God loved you before you ever existed? Loved with an everlasting love. Jeremiah uses that phrase. And we have a hymn that says that, loved with everlasting love. I am his and he is mine. We have been loved by God. God, you would love me? I'm foul. I'm sinful. I'm, I'm so dirty spiritually, and yet you would love me and provide cleansing and forgiveness through Jesus. It's incredible to think about. But here, Jesus uses the, the primary Christian word for love. He uses other words for love, too. There's several of them in the New Testament. And here he uses the word agape, which describes God's love for us. And notice that in saying that, Peter is, is he, he's, he's saying something that is, it is designed, really, to get their attention 
with what he is about to tell them. I mean, what if somebody was going to talk to you and the first thing they tell you is, you know I love you. Sometimes I've heard that and I thought, oh boy, what have I done now? When a, a dear friend will tell me that, I figure, okay, I'm gonna have to be rebuked and corrected. And that's fine, because that's, we all need that at times. But it's not always that way. It gets your attention and it makes you realize, hey, this is important to think about. Whatever they're gonna tell me, they're, they're reminding me that they're not just losing their temper at me and, and angry with me, they care about me. And so in doing that, he tells them that he, they need to live this life of love and live it in a serious way. Because he uses the word urge. Beloved, I urge you. He's not just making an offhand suggestion here. He is putting all of his authority as an apostle in the early church and saying to them, what I'm about to tell you, I'm urging you to do. It's the same word that Paul used in Romans 12, where he says, I beseech you or I urge you to give your bodies as a living sacrifice, present your bodies as a living sacrifice to God that is holy and acceptable to him. And so it is an urgent uh, word that he's giving them here. Are we really serious about living the way the Lord wants us to live? We really have to consider that. Seriously. We can be too casual with this. We can almost look at getting more serious with the Lord, more obedient, more prayerful, uh, more ministry to others instead of just you know, lounging in our chairs at home. We can get too casual and we can neglect our own biblical responsibilities. This life then is a life that is different. It's not different just to be different. Now, there are people who seem to like that. Um, I've sort of picked up on that in noticing the greater variation in some people's hair color. I'm not complaining about it. I'm not criticizing it. But I do realize that I'm seeing more lively colors that people are wearing their hair than I used to see. And uh, sometimes it it's sort of makes me smile, makes me almost laugh inwardly, not laughing in a mocking way, but just, isn't that something? <laughs> uh, and, you know, all kind of things like that. And sometimes people do that just because they want to be different. Why do I have to have my hair only this one color? How about a color of the day, a color du jour? Nothing wrong with that. So don't see me as being critical here. Just an example. But this is a different kind of different that I'm talking about. Peter calls them some names. You know, sometimes people will call us names, but maybe not these. But we need to change that. He says, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, reminding us what he said at the very beginning of this letter when he addressed them. He uses that kind of terminology. 
sojourners, exiles. Years ago, there was a story in the Mississippi News uh, about uh, some people that were arrested. Uh, they were factory workers uh, somewhere down in central Mississippi, and they were arrested and deported. I don't know how much of that goes on anymore, but that's what happened then. And uh, they were con considered to be illegal aliens. And the TV news spoke to one of those who was there for the right reasons. And he showed the reporter his green card. And the green card said on there, resident alien. He wasn't deported. He was there legally. He was from another country, but he was there legally. Resident alien. That's what you and I are in God's eyes. We're living here in this world, in this life, but we're aliens. This is not our ultimate home. And he does, Peter doesn't want his readers to forget that. I think we need to remind ourselves of that a lot. It's, we can get too caught up in the, the news and the things that's going on around us and even overreact, I think, sometimes because we want to solve all these problems that uh, we can't really solve. Not on our own, of course. So Peter is telling them, look, you're aliens, you're strangers. You're just passing through this world to another world. The older people get, this, I'm saying this from experience now, the older people get, the more they tend to think about eternity. And the fact that they're not going to be around here a whole lot longer. But, you know, every one of us can say that. Compared to eternity, our lives are short, even if you live to be 100. That's nothing compared to forever. And so we have to live our lives in the light of that. Remember that I'm here. God's put me here. I have a purpose here. And I'm to serve God and do his will and carry out what he wants me to do. And to do it in a way that glorifies God. But that's just the preparation for eternity. So we don't want to undervalue living in this world, but at the same time, we don't need to live as if it was all there was. So Peter is pointing that out to them, passing through. We must understand our status as Christians while we live here on earth. It's distinctive. It's distinctive because of who we are. Now look at the second thing, and I can only touch on these. A Christian life is prohibitive. Look at the end of verse 2, on verse 11. Abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. This is sort of the negative aspect of what we have to deal with in our Christian lifestyles. We have to abstain. People talk about abstaining from smoking or whatever it is that they're trying to uh, not do anymore. I suppose there's been a lot of New, New Year's resolutions about I'm going to stop doing this. No, I'm going to stop doing that. And hopefully they can. But this is the most important aspect. Abstain from what? The passions of the flesh. And that just means our sinful desires. You can look at a brand new car and, and you can say, oh, that's nice. Or you can look at it and say, I'm jealous of the person who has it. I covet that. I want it. And I'm going to do whatever I can to get it. 
There's where you're crossing the line and you've got to be real careful. Passions of the flesh, and that can cover a lot of things, of course. But he's telling us here there's a war going on. A war in your soul. It's the same thing Paul talks about in Romans 7. When he tells us that we've got this continual conflict within us as Christians. You know, when you become a Christian, it doesn't get easier. <laughs> it gets harder. We are in a spiritual war because a part of our hearts are, we're still sinful. We're saved, but we're sinful still. We won't be when we get to heaven, but we still have to fight that. Now we're, we're wanting to honor God and please Him, but then there's that sinful nature that's pulling at that. It's like, sort of like a tug of war. These passions wage war in your soul. And so we have to fight that spiritual warfare. Study Ephesians 6, beginning at verse 10, and that gives you a great section there on, on the spiritual warfare and how we need to deal with it. God, how God provides for it. And then uh, moving on to the uh, other part of the, the uh, passage here, I, I have other things to say, but let me finish up with the third part here. The Christian lifestyle is also attractive. It's prohibitive in that there are things that we must not do because they are not pleasing to God. They do damage to us and to others. There's plenty of reasons not to do certain things. Deal with the war in your soul. Fight the good fight. But then here's this attractive part. There's a sense in which Christians are attractive. And he says that at the, in verse 12. Keep your conduct among, conduct means lifestyle. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. We are to be beautiful, spiritually beautiful. There was a dear friend that Beth and I had who died many years ago of cancer, and she was not what I would consider to be a real attractive person physically, but boy, was she beautiful spiritually. And that beauty just shined out from her. And it's so much so that to me, you don't really see what they physically look like. You, you don't really care. It doesn't really matter. It's that inward beauty. Peter's going to talk about that in chapter 3 when he talks about faithful wives who uh, don't have Christian husbands. Let that inner beauty be what's attractive about you, your godliness, your likeness to Jesus. That's what we need to focus on. And maybe we need to, some of us may need to stop spending so much time and maybe even obsessing over how we look. You've got better ways to, to focus, more important things to focus on in that, than that, you know. We all, I mean, we don't want to come in here looking like we just got drugged through the gutter. But at the same time, we don't want to overdo that, the importance of how we look. Peter here uses the word good, and he uses it all the way through 1 Peter. In fact, I counted 17 times that Peter uses good in his first letter here, and seven of them are in this chapter. 
Good means morally upright and pleasing to God. It's a reflection of God who is good. But it also has this sense of beautiful, spiritually beautiful. And that's why I said we are to be beautiful. So listen to this little sentence from Shakespeare. I don't know if they're teaching Shakespeare anymore in school. Uh, some of you in school may be going, who's that? <laughs> um, that's a sad thing if that's true. But anyway, Shakespeare uh, wrote, one of his tragedies was Othello. And uh, there was a character in there named Iago, and he talks about Cassius, another man in this play. Iago says of Cassius, he hath a daily beauty in his life that makes me ugly. Whoa, boy, that, would that be great if that could be said of you and me? Not that we want other people to feel like they're ugly, but the fact that we're supposed to be attractive in that way. The attraction of, of a person who is trustworthy, who loves others more than himself, who depends on God to provide for his needs day in and day out, who cares about what goes on in a person's soul. Our beautiful lives will make a difference. It will serve as a witness to the world. He's telling us here, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. ESV is honorable, but it's the same word for good. And he says, uh, do that so that they, when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds. They may still be offensive. They may still not like you. They may say, you Christians are all just... Christianity is just a crutch for weak people. No matter, they still see that we love Christ. And we are a witness in that sense. Sometimes people will falsely accuse us. They will hate us even more because we are grounded in the Word of God and we live by it. They may do that. Others, though, however, may say, you know, there's something to this person that stands out in their lives that I want to find out more about. You know, if just one person begins to think seriously about their relationship to Christ because of your faithful lifestyle, wouldn't that be great in heaven if y'all could meet up? <laughs> I think it would. So Peter says, do this so that you may they may glorify God on the day of visitation. Maybe that means they'll glorify God by coming to faith in Christ. Maybe it means they at least see that God can change people's lives in a wonderful way. But in either case, God is glorified. God is praised. God is honored. God is acknowledged for who he is because of us. Incredible to think about. Glorify God. What's the answer to the first catechism question? You don't have to say it. What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That's our calling. So are you beautiful? Are you beautiful in the way Peter is talking about? 
Well, you can be through Jesus Christ. Consider your daily behavior. What do people see in you day in and day out? Are you living a Christian lifestyle? Look, there's not a person in here that, that, that can't say, I'm not living a Christian lifestyle the way I ought. I need to be more consistent. I need to be more faithful. Well, fine, do that. If this stirs you up to want to be more faithful to Christ, then my ramblings this morning will have accomplished something good, I trust. Are you practicing God's standards for your home life, your social interactions with people, your work in all your relationships? Do others see a difference in you that reflects the beauty of God? Ask God today to help you be genuinely holy and an attractive witness for his glory. Let's pray. Father in heaven, your word sometimes can pierce deeply and convict us, but we pray that we will respond to that conviction by repentance and making whatever changes we need to make that we would be more faithful to you. But Lord, help us to do it out of love. Help us to love Christ and in loving Christ to love others so that our lifestyle would glorify you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.